from you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why she wouldn't even have a fly. What's up, everybody? You're listening to No Co Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and I'm Connor Cornelius, and we're excited to be back with you for another week of film conversation. Uh, Connor, been a little while. It's been a while. It's been a while. But how you been, Tom? Been good. You know, um, been watching a lot of stuff. I've been really good. I've been trying to watch at least one one film or at least maybe a short couple of shorts a day. Um, been trying to get back into into like television again, kind of event television. So it's the golden age for it. I apparently. know. I I think there's a lot of good stuff that we've both been watching recently, and we'll we'll definitely get to that a little bit later because we want want to give you our recommendations and some of the things that we're excited about. But uh, let's start off with a little bit of uh, sad news. Um, yeah, let's. The uh, distinctive cinematic voice of Nicholas Roeg has uh, unfortunately been snuffed out of this world. He has passed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, uh, <laughs> no, no, that's good. No, I like that. No, I, has has taken the veil. He has taken the veil, and um, and it's really sad. I know it, it's my <laughs> maybe my phrasing was off. So let's say this: the distinctive voice of Nicholas Roeg has. Uh, unfortunately left this world um he is known as the director of don't look now starring donald sutherland and the man who fell to earth starring david bowie uh nicholas roeg has passed away at the age of 90 and it's weird because he's one of these people that's really well known in film circles very well respected um but i feel like his wider audience is is quite small um except for two films i would really say uh, which are The Witches with Angelica Houston, which was one I really loved when I was growing up, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a movie that I think really cemented David Bowie as a pop culture icon. I really, really think that Roeg's um, directing and his his idea to cast David Bowie cemented him as a particularly otherworldly figure you know the man who fell to earth if you said if you did not know that that was a movie starring david bowie would you be like oh is that a david bowie album yeah that sounds like an album yeah this so what is the story it's the story of a of an alien coming to earth who is looking for power in order to save his home planet or like water right to save his home planet you know what i'm not gonna lie to you it's been a very long time since i've seen the movie i'm just i i'm really caught up in the imagery of it though sure because there's a particular scene that always gets me so this is david bowie in the era when he had his like bright orange hair yeah i want to say that's um it's glam david yeah pretty pretty glammy david bowie right before he gets into the thin white duke era so uh you might recognize this look from uh the album low like if you see the album cover to low right, right. this is what he looks like and um you know as i said it it cements him as this otherworldly guy specifically the scene where he like he has normal eyes throughout most of the movie mm-hmm. and then they reveal like these kind of um cat-like you know alien eyes at one point and there he is with his bright orange hair and these like crazy vertical pupils and stuff like that and it's just awesome and i remember i saw that relatively young and i think it really cemented me as loving i've said cemented a lot i think it really just got got me to understand david bowie as such a wider artist as more than just a guy who makes music this is this is a true like artistic guy he does film he does uh music he does it all and if you haven't been completely sold on david bowie yet go ahead and check out this movie directed by nicholas Ray because it's it's definitely an experience it's experience man it's definitely an experience it really is and it's sad because there was a criterion edition that was released at one point and then it went out of print but i think there's a newer remaster from studio canal uh, that you can pick up for relatively cheap. I'm guessing it's probably going to get into that $30 range because it is a harder-to-find movie. But, uh, yes, Nicholas Ray, R.I.P., um, a tru- truly an original voice in cinema. Um, let's move on to 
maybe a lack of originality yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, so this Thanksgiving is kind of when a lot of big event movies come out. We're getting into that like that weird era of the year where you're going to just be getting the movies that are you're going to see in the Oscars. You know, yes, in the in 2019, absolutely a lot of big, you know, uh, prestige pictures, but also the kind of those those kind of Christmassy ones that like you know it's strange all these huge franchise movies come out in Christmas I feel like that's a right. relatively recent thing I like to trace it back to the Lord of the Rings because oh, yeah. those all came out around Christmas time and I think folks our age you know if you're like in your mid to late twenties maybe early thirties you kind of remember that growing up it's like all of a sudden Christmas time there were big movies coming out not having to necessarily do with the holidays but big event movies altogether it's those big pg-13 tent poles that you can take the whole family to and you know maybe excite the kids a little bit and give something for the parents to watch that isn't you know lovey-dovey bullshit yeah like they used to absolutely so we're talking we're going to talk a little bit about Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which I think is a terrible title for a movie. Uh, as someone who works in a movie theater, people have such trouble with that movie. Well, especially if you have to like put the letters up on the marquee. It's like, oh, fuck. Christ. Does J.K. Rowling not remember what it's like to be a working person? <laughs> That's... <laughs> Why would she do like that? Call out posts for J.K. Rowling. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... I remember when they announced the title of the movie... And I thought to myself, who is going to understand what this is outside of people who already have, like, a deeper knowledge of Harry Potter lore? I consider myself to be a pretty casual appreciator of the Harry Potter franchise. You know, I watched all the movies. I read the books growing up. Connor, you also read the. Yeah. I'd say you were slightly a bigger fan than I would be. Probably. I mean, I, I I was super into Harry Potter and I actually recently rewatched the the movies um and I I really love them. Nostalgia be damned. You know, I think that they're great movies and I really like the story. I agree. I think there's I was always the kid growing up. Maybe I was trying to be contrarian, but I think there's an element of truth to how I felt was I like these movies more than I liked reading the books most of the time because I love the aesthetic that they built. I love the just the look of the movie, the amount of production design. I thought the acting was pretty good. It, most of that's the, time. the thing. My when I remembered what I remembered of the movies, looking back, was I was like, oh, the thing is, the chi- the, chi- the kids are not that great at acting. You know, mm-hmm. I never was. I never thought like Daniel Radcliffe or Rupert Grint were were that great. But looking back on it, they were awesome. Aside from the moments where Harry. Had has to give like a smile and it looks fake shit so those seven eight movies however you want to count them were pretty formative for a lot of people especially in our age group because we were roughly the age of the characters themselves right. we were growing up with them yeah and uh you know it's i think they'll they'll stand the test of time as being pretty great movies pretty interesting pretty good movies you know but then we get Fantastic Beasts, which comes in 2016, and it's not based on any source material. It is aside from a 50-page book yeah. that she wrote, which is it's. I remember getting it. It was released between like the third and the fourth books, or whatever it was, and it's just these sort of journal entries about the monsters that that J.K. Rowling created. You know, mm-hmm. and I was ex- expecting like a novella, but it's like. She is making five movies. She's going to be the screenwriter for five movies based off of what is ostensibly a throwaway 50-page thing that was probably just hobbled together from notes that she took. Yeah, essentially just an attempt at world building. And um, so they decide to turn this into a film series. You get the first one in 2016, simply called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And it did it did well mm-hmm. at the box office. Critically, it was I'd say about average. Yeah. Um. I know I really did not dig it super. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is okay. Yeah. Well, we saw it together, and we yeah. were just sort of like, we were a little lukewarm about it. I mean, it was fun. It was an adventure. Whatever. Eddie yeah. Redmayne looks like a, a grazing deer who hears something <laughs> and then looks up. Huh. 
What's that? And, and then, oh, back to grazing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Witty one-liner. Okay, back to grazing. <laughs> That's exactly him. <laughs> and, you know, I, was just, I didn't really have any strong feelings about it either way. But then you get this one, uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which I think is easily one of the worst names that they could have gone with because it's referencing a character that the average viewer really doesn't know who they are. And who is Grindelwald? Right. He's like the... uh, pre-Voldemort, Voldemort. Voldemort. Yeah. Like in Lord of the Rings, how in that mythology, there's Morgoth, who's like the OG Dark Lord. Yeah, like the Satan figure. Right. And then this is... And then you get Sauron, who's like his lackey. His Beelzebub. His Beelzebub or his Azel. Something like that. Uh And, you know, the movie came out to... This second Fantastic Beast came out to pretty mediocre acclaim... And uh, not even a claim, just pretty mediocre reactions. Yeah. Um, about a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Most people didn't really like it. Audience score was a little bit higher, 65%. But even then, for a Harry Potter movie, something with that rabbit of a fan base generally has a much, you know, higher audience score. Yeah. You'd expect to see it like in the 80s at least, right? And, yeah. And I've been following the Rotten Tomatoes score. It's been dropping. People have been late to the game to see it. And it, last time I checked, it was like at 44 or 42%, and now it's at 40. Yeah. And as we noted earlier, the if you look at the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, it actually drops the score even more. Yeah, you bring in you bring in those top critics, it uh, brings it down to about a 36 or something, something in that realm. So it's, you know, it's not doing super well. It, it Monetarily, it didn't do poorly enough for Warner Brothers to necessarily be super worried, but they're definitely worried because this is Harry Potter. It's a fucking cash cow. Right. It's one of the top franchises of all time. It's worth billions and billions of dollars. So there's this interesting analysis on IndieWire.com that kind of goes into you know, what is happening here with J.K. Rowling, and they compare her a little bit to George Lucas because these aren't totally unlike the Star Wars prequels. Right. And um, it makes you ask the question, is she kind of ruining her own legacy by trying to do this? Is she tainting her... If you're looking at it from a business perspective... If you're looking at it from a business perspective... Is she watering down her own brand, her own franchise? Right. And I think that the interesting question that the that the article asks is what what happens when you have these masterminds behind these multi-billion dollar properties when they revisit it years later? And is it like you said, is it is it watering down the quality of the previous films? I I think that it's interesting. I think you have to look at the way that George Lucas did it compared to J.K. Rowling because it's different, right? Mm-hmm. So you had the original series of Star Wars movies, and then there was about twenty years or thir- twenty years of nothing, of dead air, aside from all of the non-canon shows and books and everything mm-hmm. and stories that came out. But then you get the prequel series, and they are pretty much maligned to this day thank shout out to jar jar binks <laughs> and um and then you know then eventually he famously sells it to disney and now we're going to get three thousand star wars movies every six months until we're you know until our grandchildren are dead yeah so that that's the way that george lucas did it now jk rowling ever since the books came out there's been movies ever since i, I think the first one came out when we were like 10 or something even younger 2001 2001 so you get that, and then the last one, the eighth installment in the series, comes out when I'm about to graduate high school in 2011, and Tom's a year out from that. Yeah. And then there's, what, four years of dead air until the... The play, The Cursed Child. But until The Cursed Child, right. There's a play, and then you get the Fantastic Beast. So people haven't been able to get a breath. People haven't gotten a rest from Harry Potter. It's been constantly thrown in your face in one form of media or another. Especially when you have things like, as many people know... Uh, the chan- I know the channel formerly known as ABC Family. I think it's called Freeform now. But for years, they were famous for running all the Harry Potter movies in a huge marathon. Yeah. So they were definitely not unavailable. People were able to get their Harry Potter fix by watching the, the original films, as it were. So I really don't know... And I'm, you know, I'm not cued into the Harry Potter fandom. I don't know what kind of stuff they're talking about. Um... I know 
J.K. Rowling had her website Pottermore, which was yeah. like supposed to be the next phase of the uh, Harry Potter world and how it was going to continue into in perpetuity. But I just I f- and now J.K. Rowling is right; she's the screenwriter for these, whereas she yes. was just the the writer of the novels for the she's credited as right. the writer of the novels. She almost has the opposite story of George Lucas, where George Lucas was the original sole architect of the films. She she just had the stories. So she's the sole architect of the Harry Potter universe, but other people were handling the film part of it, right. including Academy Award winning, eventual Academy Award winning director, one of my favorite directors, Alfonso Cuaron. Right. He did the third, the third one. one, which was many people think is the best. Yeah, I think it's a, a great entry and uh, one of those moments where I was just like, yeah, this is this is a pretty good franchise. It's a pretty great franchise. They're doing some interesting stuff. So I, I have to think that realistically, she is watering it down with poor quality stuff. The characters aren't there. Characters aren't there. The world's barely there. Yeah, it's it's there in in visual only. Right. You know, it looks like the other Harry Potter films in a lot of ways, partially because it's the bulk of the Harry Potter movies were directed by one guy, David Yates. He did five through the rest of them, and, and now he's done Fantastic Beasts 1 and 2. Right. So it's visually the same in a lot of ways, but I think what J.K. Rowling doesn't have is the ability to write a screenplay and you know i've never been a huge fan of her writing just the writing like the prose itself it's pop it's pop lit right and but she is a great storyteller so i think she's got great stories i think the greater arc of what she's trying to do here could be interesting yeah but when you do screenwriting you lose the crutch of being able to just create a great imaginative world for people to inhabit, it has to be so heavy on character and theme. Mm -hmm. You have to have strong, strong, strong characters that are consistent, especially if you're planning on doing fucking five of these. Right. And frankly, I, you know, quality of acting aside, you know, we could go for days talking about whether we think Eddie Redmayne is the the cause of it his lack of charisma or any of the other actors or even bringing in Johnny Depp for this one as the main villain Grindelwald Um, I think that really anybody would have a tough time with portraying these characters because even from Fantastic Beasts you know it seems like they just kind of walked back everything that was in the first one like any sort of relationships that were built any sort of character traits that were established really get walked back pretty heavily just so that it can serve the plot. Even Ezra Miller, who uh, appears in the first one, he plays a specific character. In this second one, his behaviors get changed to be so much more out of character in service of the plot itself so that he can be more important player and have more significance to later later in, uh you know, incarnations down the line, uh, right. you know, entries, later entries down the line. So I just realistically don't know if having J.K. Rowling continue doing this without any sort of input right. is what we need. Because we've seen what happens when we give free reign to, uh, you know, the original creator. You know, we want, we like to believe that they know what's best for this world. Right. But that's not necessarily true. And they might get too bogged down in some of the things that are not so important. There's no editing. You know, we, I, I like to push back to the original Star Wars where George Lucas had to rewrite that story so many times to get it made. Because they were just like, nah, dude, you got to do better. You got to do better. But then when we put them as like this beacon of artistic integrity then when something goes wrong, we feel so hurt. We're just like, oh, we thought you knew. We thought you knew exactly how to do it. You're the creator. Yeah. Well, you know, the creator is not always the best person to continue a story past its original beginning, middle, and end. Right. And I think that maybe J.K. Rowling gave herself a little bit of a disservice by getting the band back together, to so to speak. Got the same producer, got the same director, David Yates. And what they got to do with the books was they took this great 300-page manuscript and they got to, you know, pare it down into a two-and-a-half-hour story. Mm-hmm. Now, here, what you're getting, if you look at the screenplay, which can be bought at any local airport bookstore, 
on stand and gorgeous hardcover mm-hmm. and you can pay about 40 bucks for it which sucks but it's they're not being able to inject the same amount of passion into it because it's a completely different process for them mm-hmm. and i think that maybe that's the key here is that if you have a sole architect of a world and you give them creative license to go back to it and add things into it, it kind of cheapens them as an artist. It yeah. kind of cheapens George Lucas when he goes back and tries to overcomplicate things that people don't care about in a world that people really do care about. And it kind of cheapens J.K. Rowling as an artist when she has all of these great books and beloved f- the beloved eight films, which I think are great. I love watching them. But she goes back to it and adds all of this backstory to thing that ultimately doesn't matter. Right. I think the question that you and I have been asking ourselves is why does this exist? Yeah. Why I'm having an existential crisis over all these franchises. (laughs) I'd, I would honestly love to ask JK Rowling that question, but I don't think I would ever get the chance because I think it is a little bit, it's a little bit rude. It is a little, but I think she could stand it. Like she, it stands. The question stands to be asked. Why does this exist? Do we realistically need a backstory explaining all this other stuff that is it? I think we'd maybe be having a different conversation if this were good. Right. Absolutely. And let's not say that it's not, that it's not possible to be good right Right. we can do this sort of thing there's gonna be eight more hours of this stuff whether we like it or not yeah unless unless the next film does so poorly that it just becomes financially unfeasible unfeasible then we're gonna get another you know three movies yeah so maybe she can turn it around i think she needs to bring in someone else to help because there's there's something's lost in translation and you know if there's people might question is she just phoning it in at this point right it's just like they've just been like yeah we're gonna give you like a hundred million dollars to do this hell i would take it up right i would i would give us a call jk we'll do it yeah jk come on come on the show yeah but you talk about you know, you talk about just the sort of disappointment that people are talking. Like, I am—I did not see Crimes of Grindelwald yet because of you the— You avoided it. I've avoided it because of the critical reception and everything. And I, I can't help but go back to the Hobbit trilogy that was released. And just at the very end of it, I mean, the actors don't seem super into it, similar to what I feel like when I saw the first— fantastic beasts the actors don't seem super excited to be back in the world in the very end of the movie it's like you have to go discover aragorn for yourself dun 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 yeah oh but now it's like go watch the next one that's and that's the problem like when we ask why does this exist these if you're gonna make a franchise about these movies it can't just be a channel to take you back to the stuff that was actually good it has to be good on its own yes a hundred percent yes it's not just like, oh, look. Oh, you remember this? Tip of the cap, JK. Yeah. Tip, tip of the cap. Oh, uh, uh, now we're going to give back Peter Jackson. You know Nagini, right? Yeah. Turns out she wasn't always a snake. <laughs> it's like, all right, But she's not writing a fully fledged. That could be interesting because it could explore many different things, but it's just not done in a way that's particularly uh, new or fresh or exciting. It's just the same old, same old. And let's give J.K. Rowling a little bit of a break. I mean, she we doesn't do. give a shit, but she was, you know, she comes from a humble background, right? She, she does. She was dirt poor when she wrote the first Harry Potter. And she's worked incredibly hard. And what she's achieved is something that very few people could ever dream of doing, which right. is influencing international popular culture to a point that in your own time, in your own time, no less. Yeah. She is alive. She was here to experience it. She was here for Potter mania. She was here to watch what she did. And she's irrevocably changed children's and young adult fiction. I would say ultimately for the better. Absolutely. And so this is just, a. uh, a questioning and insight into why she continues to do this. I think she could stand to ask that question herself. I agree. And let's move on to speaking of the despair that you feel in and <laughs> watching these new franchises come to light of uh, based off of things that you have such an affinity. Well, I guess I have such an affinity for mm-hmm. let's, let's get into a couple of teasers that we got this week. We have to talk about Disney and their new strategy of mining the Disney Renaissance until there is nothing left. <laughs> 
Like, seriously, they're doing all of them. Yeah. They're doing all of them. So what I'm talking about is we got two teasers over the last few weeks uh, for new Disney remakes, one for Aladdin and one for The Lion King. Right. Um, Aladdin, going to be directed by Guy Ritchie. Okay. Question. Yeah. Questionable. Don't really understand that. And The Lion King being directed by John Favreau. Okay. Who which, famously did the Jungle Book. Which yeah. He was, did the. Uh, which did well. Yeah. Another one of these remakes. He kind of kicked it off a bit. Mm-hmm. And um, watching them, they look interesting. They they look really good. They look really good. Like in, in terms of the look. Now, we're not saying that we think these movies are going to be really good. They just have the, the aesthetics. Right. Of looking good. But. It does pose a similar question to what we're asking of JK and what we would ask of George Lucas and what we'd ask of most of Disney and all these other franchises is what, why are we remaking this? Right. Because we're not necessarily adding something new. I really don't think that by remaking this, there's any sort of value outside of two things. Uh, one potentially representation because we're talking about two movies, specifically Aladdin and The Lion King, which you could probably chide for being non-representative, using mostly white actors, absolutely, uh, in stories that take place in different cultures. You know, with Aladdin, t- part of the Arabian Nights, and taking place in that Middle Eastern tradition, and then The Lion King taking place in the African tradition, taking entirely, you know, taking place in Africa. So, I think that's something that we have to consider as being of its own merit. But I think the greater merit to Disney, it's very transparent, is the money. Right. This is nothing new for Disney. As many of us remember, the Disney Vault sort of scheme that they will do, which is whenever there's a new format, they will release, you know, one of their classics. And uh, this goes back to specifically Pinocchio. Mm. Um, Originally, Disney did not want to release any of their stuff on VHS. But what they decided to do is experiment, and they use one of their what they consider to be a B-lister, which is Pinocchio. They that was their first Disney film on VHS, and it sold like hotcakes. It went so fast, and they couldn't believe it. So they developed the strategy where every few years they'll release a Disney classic on a new format, whether that be uh, DVD, Blu-ray. Maybe they'll do 4K. But since streaming and they've got Disney Plus coming up, that's probably going to be the home for most of it. But and that's that's their new Disney Vault. Now you got to pay ten dollars a month, eleven dollars a month to get your Disney Vault. Right. But they would essentially release it for a limited amount of time, and after that period of time, they would just stop producing them and be like, "All right, it's going back in the vault." Yep. And they'd be out of print, and then you'd have to pay like forty dollars just to get it on eBay. That sort of thing, you know. And you got to really work hard to find it. And now we're witnessing a brave new Disney. A brave new Disney. That's just like, well, we're just gonna make people pay money to see the same movie again, in a way that is not particularly new or fresh or different. Now, again, we're talking about when it comes to the Lion King and Aladdin, we're talking about movies that have not been released yet. So they're more or less absolved at this point until we actually see what it is. But from what I've seen out of specifically one of them, Beauty and the Beast, it is a straight remake that adds no new perspective, no new uh, artistry to it other than it's in CGI. It's the same songs you know and love. It's actually, I think, worse characterizations than we had before. Yeah. And they add things that are just totally unnecessary. Yeah. Superfluous to the plot. There's this whole thing dealing with Belle's mom, which I guess, you know, you can do it. They're trying to fix perceived plot holes in the original. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really do anything for it because the original was more or less perfect. Yeah. It came out in 1991. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to this day. In every way as well. Yes. And it's a technological achievement. It's a cinematic achievement. And that's not to say that 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 Beauty and the Beast is, for all intents and purposes, a remake. It has been been made before. You had the Cocteau, the Jean Cocteau one in like the 20s or 30s, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And it's based on an old story. Which so, is how Disney does most of their famous cartoons, right? Price, precisely, precisely. But what it did was it brought a fresh 
original perspective to the story in a way that was beautiful. It had the music, which I still think to this day is hands down the best Disney original soundtrack I've ever heard. It is beautiful. And you, you go back and you watch these movies and... Don't tell me that when you hear the beginning chords of the song Beauty and the Beast that it doesn't just swell something inside of you. There's just like something in that in your body. You feel your nerves tingle throughout your entire, you know, being and your heart swells. It's like, you know, it's that Disney magic that has been ingrained in us in a lot of ways, especially those who were children of the Disney Renaissance where you get – um, you get the Little Mermaid, you get Beauty and the Beast, you get Aladdin, you get the Lion King, even going as late as Mulan in 1998. Right. You you see the Disney castle and you hear When You Wish Upon a Star and you want to cry. And you're a kid again. And you're a kid again. You're so immediately transported. And, you know, we can have a conversation about nostalgia if we want to, but I really don't think it matters. I think we're talking about movies that stuck with us and meant something that talked a lot about identity and who we are and asking ourselves as children to be, you know, something more and to think about things that are so much greater than ourselves. Right. I'm not saying that these movies can't do that. And it would be wrong to um, suggest that John Favreau and his, you know, sidebar, fantastic casts for both of these. Yeah. Um, Eric you know, Andre is a hyena, particularly fond of, of that. That's choice. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got Donald Glover. You've got um, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones reprising that role of Mufasa. Oh, my God. Fuck. Yeah. So that's, good. That's the reaction, right? Beyonce's coming in. You've got Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner playing. As Pum- Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah. It's or just Pumbaa and Timon. Pumbaa and Timon, respectively. These are great casts. And, you know, um, with Aladdin, they have an opportunity to have a representative cast now. Right. Which they failed at pre- prior. They failed at prior, too. But, you know, you have to ask yourself. Why are we not just bringing back these classics? Yes, there's problematic aspects of them, but to wash that out, I think, is even more problematic. To pretend that these other ones didn't exist, you know, is just stupid. Because tell me you, like, you go back and show a kid the original Aladdin and you show Robin Williams' performance as the genie. That is the performance of a lifetime. No. And it's, you know, it. I think it would be a disservice to pretend that he's not the genie anymore. He is always the genie. Right. And, you know, props to Will Smith for stepping up. I think he's probably the best possible choice yeah. to be the new genie. Because he's got idea. that same kind of manic energy in a lot of ways. His humor is... In in my opinion, a little bit that in that direction, and I think, but he's going to do it his own, and he's going to be, and we we should give him the opportunity to do it. But sure. I don't know. I mean, you go back and watch that performance of Robin Williams, and it is spectacular. He was like my hero because of that. I watched that, and it shaped it shaped my sense of humor so much. And um, it led me to watch some of his more, you know, dramatic roles. Like, you know, as I grew up, I'm like, oh, I love Robin Williams. So I should make, oh, I'm going to try Good Morning Vietnam. Right. Imagine if I never came to that or Dead Poet Society or so many other fantastic roles. Goodwill Hunting. I watched Goodwill Hunting because Robin Williams was in it. And that's what great art does, right? You see a performance even if you're a kid, which you most of which Tom and I both were when Aladdin came out. We were, you know, we watched it as children. You that's what great art does is you recognize a great performance and then it wants it makes you want to explore whether you want to advance develop your own artistry or you want to experience the artistry of people whose performances you really appreciated yeah and now i'm not this is i have a very similar problem with what you were describing with with these movies because i i'm not worried about the classics being forgotten i'm more worried that 
these things are just these things are the hobbit to the lord of the rings man these remakes are just the hobbit to the lord of the rings it's supposed to take you from you're supposed to watch it and then you're supposed to go back and and watch the classics right because i don't think that they're telling anything new james earl jones is fucking reprising his role as mufasa like just go watch his original performance it's not going to be any worse or better probably and i don't know how quickly you saw the trailers but i i saw the lion king trailer after it had been already cut and spit out by the internet machine so i watched the side-by-side comparison of the original lion king uh trailer Mm -hmm. with the new one and they're literally a shot for shot remake which wasn't necessarily what surprised me the thing that surprised me the most was how much more vivid and beautiful and sumptuous the animated version was these new colors they just look they look washed out and it looks great. It looks realistic, this it does. 2019 Lion King, but... And everybody's going to say, you know, oh, but it looks so good. But so, go to the go back to the time that these cartoons were released. These were technological innovations when the cartoons came out. No one made animation like that. Yeah, and they're, uh, again, the vividness. And I feel like we're getting... Are we erasing traditional hand-drawn animation as a result? Because right. this is... Some of those movies are the apex of that style of animation that'd be like i i know maybe this is an unfair comparison but like imagine if they decide to do live action spirited away yeah holy fucking shit the shit storm you would have on your hands yeah people would go crazy you don't remake miyazaki you just don't and i think realistically that should be the same for the lion king yeah and i know there's a complicated history is like is the Lion the lion king is you know, maybe a ripoff of this other Japanese one called Kimba the Lion. Is it also just basically Hamlet? Yeah. <laughs> the broad strokes. Yeah, it is Hamlet. Sure. But I don't know. I feel like we're getting into territory where we're losing our film history. I Like, how is this debate different than when people wanted to colorize black and white movies? I don't realistically think it is. No. I think that's what we're doing. It's it's akin to that. You're taking Casablanca and you're putting it in color. You're just updating it with new technology, but you're losing the original magic of it. Those vi- oh, right. the, vi- the colors. Yeah. There's there's sequences in that that I don't know hit the same mark if they're not this kind of cartoonish bliss. Right. And when the when the only things that's being carried over from the original films is the technological marvel, you know, like the these things look great. There nothing will ever be made like the Lion King. This is going to be a first, right? It's going to be an entirely CGI movie. All the backgrounds are CGI. All the characters are CGI. And it's going to look like the best thing that you've ever seen in your entire life in terms of that. But when the only thing that's being transferred over from these originals in terms of a remake is the technological innovation and your and certainly the uh, representation is important, mm-hmm. but that's something that should have been done in the first place. So you're and- getting that and then you're getting, you know, nothing added, at least if Beauty and the Beast is any metric by how they're making these movies, the only thing that they're adding to it is overcomplicated nonsense that ultimately doesn't really me- mean much to people. Did you, like, did, who watched the uh, Cinderella remake? I didn't even know that it came out. Yeah. Fucking um, young Baratheon. Not Baratheon. Uh, what, young Stark? Yeah. Who's the, the eldest son? Rob Stark. Rob Stark's in Rob it. Rob Stark's in it. He's Prince Charming. Yeah. Who the fuck remembers that shit? Yeah. No one. <laughs> I, no one remembers I, it. I didn't even see a trailer for it. Oh, my God. I did Who not remembers even know that, that movies exist? That's what we're talking about. No one. They're just making them for money. No one's going right. to remember. Maybe The Lion King will change that because I think that story... And the cast that they've assembled might be the thing that sets it apart. And maybe John Favreau is going to do something right. spectacular and different. I think there's an opportunity. They're also doing they're going to redo Mulan, which is a movie that doesn't necessarily suffer from the representation problem because no. there are a, t- a ton of people, a ton of people of uh, Chinese and you know general Asian descent did work on that movie. Like Mulan is voiced by Ming-Na Wen. Who is, oh my god, if I got to meet her, she's my, I love her. I love Mulan. Is she your Disney princess, Tom? In a sort, in in a way. 
in a way that movie was super important to me i love that movie it was spectacular and what you know what they've talked about doing is they're going to do mulan but with no songs i'm like okay that's different like that's new. We're taking this story and we're going to turn it into a historical epic. Yeah. I can fuck with that. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe there's an oppor- there's a path here. But I just don't see why we don't like just make the old ones available. We're getting into this erasure of our collective uh history. Right. It's erasure. That's what it is. Now granted when I say erasure, there was some erasure going on in terms of representation, and I want to let everybody know I'm aware of that. But we can't just keep pretending like these things didn't happen because for better or for worse, there was a lot of merit to what we saw. And being able to go back and see things as they were originally produced is important. So, um, again, who the fuck saw that Cinderella remake? I can't believe that we didn't talk about that earlier. I It's that forgettable. Yeah, it's that forgettable. Because you know what you're really going to do? You're going to show your kids the original animated Cinderella. And you know, yeah, and you know what's not forgettable? That one. The that's animated version. That's never forgettable. And that's, never going to forget it. That's the fucking annoying thing about all of this. Is, and we don't want to be guilty until proven innocent kind of thing. Yeah, you know? but we don't want to be doing that. But it's, and we are, you know particularly raw about it because we grew up with the animated yeah versions. i feel like I, I do fear we're coming off as a little bit of fuddy-duddies or a little, a little bit of uh luddites maybe perhaps perhaps i don't know i i just want to ask this question because i know i want to show my children one day should i be lucky enough to have them uh i want to show them the lion king because i can't even explain how much that movie affected me like that was my first favorite thing was the lion king i loved it ask like ask my mom she was like she's told me before she's like you don't even understand how obsessed i was (laughs) and maybe kids will be obsessed with this new one yeah i who knows who knows but let's also let's just acknowledge that without these we could have had there's like a billion dollars in disney's production budget that could have been spent on New material, new material on the revival on the reviving other things that they that had been forgotten or you know that weren't classics like Snow White or yeah maybe or whatever the case maybe may be. redo uh, the Black Cauldron right why couldn't we Sleeping Beauty why couldn't we get something else oh I think that's already happening oh Sleeping is it Beauty. Oh, okay well yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> well, that Tim Burton classic. she's a yeah Tim Burton's gonna get his crack at it yeah motherfucker so um, you know and and it's it's. We've been talking a lot about creative bankruptcy, and I think that that is what it feels like to us. And we don't want to come across too much at, like we are, you know, stuck like in know, the past. And we know so much about cinema. Right. You know? We don't want to come across that way, but it does feel like they're slapping a new skin on stuff that was already perfect and they're not doing anything to change it. Yeah. Put more money into something, but give me, give me some like more Moana. Like right. that's a rich, that's a new thing. And give what happens? a new thing. What happens when you buy a ticket to something? What does that tell the studio executives? It tells you this is working. It tells you that this is going to continue, you know? Yeah. And if you want to change the trends of things that are not, are not what you want to be seeing in your in art or if you want to change something that is some that could be better then you have to send a message yeah vote with your dollar right um there's a reason there's going to be like four or five more black panther movies it's because you voted with your dollar you said this is what we want we want a, a movie that speaks to you want a movie that speaks to you and frankly black luckily black panther was not only culturally specific and like lifted up this beautiful aesthetic of afrofuturism and spoke to a lot of kids that don't get to see themselves represented on screen everybody just loved it yeah it, it was, was new. It was it felt new. new. Felt new, even though it was based on a property that already existed. Black Panther wasn't exactly like a bestseller. You know, yeah, he wasn't Spider Man, and now he is. Look, look at the good you can do. Look at the good you can do. All right, we're gonna cap things off here with talking about what we've been watching recently. Um, you know, as I said at the top of the show, I've been watching a lot of stuff, trying to get back into television. Yeah, because it's a golden age for it. It sucks. There's a lot of shows. I mean, I eventually. It sucks. I know, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Uh, it there, sucks there's a lot of stuff I didn't get to until later. I didn't watch Breaking Bad until much later. Um, I didn't watch Mad Men until much later. The kind of those big early staples. Yeah. Um, because I've always had a problem with TV. Well, not always. I've had a problem with TV since the ending of Lost. 
and I think that we all know why. <laughs> yeah, I just I felt I it's betrayed weird. maybe. Yeah, it's weird to describe. I got so betrayed by television that I was just like, well, fuck this. I'm never watching TV again, or I'm not watching series like this again. I'm just gonna watch like sitcoms that you know. I think my most consistent viewing has been like Stranger Things, and it's always Sunny in Philadelphia. You know, so um, with TV, I actually just jumped into. Um, sharper object or sharp objects. Sharp How object. is that? I really enjoy it. I'm a I'm a big Amy Adams fan. I feel like um, sometimes people sleep on her a little bit. Sure. I think she's an incredibly expressive actor, and um, she's she's she can do so many different things. Um, she she's very versatile. But we live in an age where there's not really a ton of movie stars anymore. There's just roles, right? And I think she does a really good job in this role. Um, just a bit of background. It's an eight-part miniseries based on the book of the same name written by uh, Jillian Flynn, Chicago resident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we know her from Gone Girl, which was a spectacular book and movie. And she's, she, you know, we were talking about authors that can make the jump to screenplays. She's done it. Yeah. She did it with Gone Girl. She's doing it here. She's written this series uh, directed by the same guy who did Big Little Lies um, for HBO, which was a huge award winner and a really great series in of itself. So I'm really enjoying it. Highly recommend it. I know I'm coming to it late. It didn't. It started, I want to say, just a few months ago. It came, It came. you know, it was a limited series. But uh, I think it's really good. I think it's, you know, definitely worth your time. And I really like that it's short. It's only eight episodes and it's done. I really like beginnings, middles, and ends. I don't like these things that go on in perpetuity because yeah. it just drives me insane. Like, right. you know, how we're going to get a, a Game of Thrones prequel series. I'm like, really? Yeah. What about what about this great story you're telling right now? That's again, Let's that's all that, that's what people care about, right? They just want more. They yeah. want more content. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you, Connor? You watch any TV or? So yeah, um, two things that I wanted to recommend. Um, you can you can find them both on Netflix because I believe they're both Netflix films. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is starring the Beast, Dan Stevens, um, called Apostle, and it. Is it called Apostle? Yeah, Apostle. So. Okay, so it's called Apostle, and it's Dan Stevens is is it's a period piece that's set in like colonial America, where uh, Dan Stevens gets on a boat and he goes to an island that's populated by a cult in search of his kidnapped daughter. Mm-hmm. And if you are a fan of occult, like straight up occult films and thrillers and you know violence and any of that sort of thing, and Dan St- and good acting. Dan Stevens does a great performance. Yeah, he's a very good actor. Um, and in just beautiful, you know, sparse usage of CGI, which you know is blessed in a Netflix film because typically their CGI is not very good. Yeah, it's some of the best CGI I've seen from a Netflix movie. It reminds um, it, it's giving me some Wicker Man vibes. It's a lot like Wicker Man, absolutely. It's Except kind without of, the bees. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is. Um, I kind of thought it was going to be like it's basically if you've seen The Witch from Robert Eggers, it's basically yeah. Netflix's The Witch, which Ooh. frankly is dope. Yeah, um, I like so that. I would re- I would really recommend that. And then the other one that I watch is The Night Comes for Us, and that movie stars the person, same person who starred in the raid. I can't remember what his name is. Eco, Eco Away. He's not a star. He's a supporting role. But in this one, but it's the most violent movie that I've seen since the raid. Pretty much, it, really? and it's more violent than that. Even. Yeah, it's pretty. Gr- I did watch this one. It was v- pretty gruesome. If you're a fan of old boy, yeah. if you're a fan of really over the top action sequences, beautifully choreographed, beautifully choreographed. It's it is a oh how we dance, <laughs> oh how we dance when we fight. Um, <laughs> if you're a fan of of that, and frankly, compelling action storytelling, watch the night comes for us. Cause it's it's gorgeous and it's very few movies have given me that squeamish feeling when yeah. you're watching it. Like the violence is so over the top. I've got. Have you ever had that experience where you just feel like kind of physically ill watching the amount of violence? Not in a bad way. Green room. Green room did that. Uh, that really when when he pulls away his arm and it's just like totally hacked up to pieces. Yeah, that's, and he, and he kind of stitches it back together with duct tape. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Yeesh. Or like the really claustrophobic scene in going back to TV, Battle of the Bastards, Game of Thrones. That yeah, that made some... me feel physically 
ill in a way that I was like, wow, these guys are really doing this to me. This film is doing this to me. Yeah. And if you are interested in visceral reactions to movies, if you're interested in watching a film that makes you feel strongly during and after, mm -hmm. watch The Night Comes for Us. Excellent. Um, I'll throw in that I did hit up the Criterion sale. Oh, yeah. As I usually do. What did you What did you get this time? Uh, Lot Tarkovsky. Oh, nice. I went for I went and got myself. Did you get Stalker? I did get Stalker. Hell yeah. Got Stalker and I got Andre Rublev. Nice. So add those over. Have, have you watched Andre Rublev yet? I did. What did you think? I did. It's an experience. I know. Sure. Yeah. It's one of those. I mean, Tarkovsky is one of those directors where it's just like I, the, your first viewing. You're just like, I don't know even what to make of this. But yeah. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, Strap in. I, I really love Solaris. So and that I think people have told me like that's a weird place to start is Solaris. I was like, I oh, don't know. It seemed pretty, pretty digestible to me. But you I feel know, it's like different, different strokes. We talked about this with the great um, Michael Smith. Yeah. And he mentioned that Solara was a method of sci-fi storytelling that Tarkovsky wasn't entirely happy with. And then he went on to make Stalker, which most consider to be his his real his masterpiece yeah, his sci-fi sci masterpiece. masterpiece interesting yeah no i think i think there's something to that so i'm excited to i'm going to be watching stalker and um that over the next couple of days uh also got slacker what's up that is um dazed and confused oh uh, richard linklater, richard linklater yeah. so stalker <laughs> so stalker anyway so slacker <laughs> is uh is Richard is Richard Linklater's um, debut, his feature length debut, and um, it's just such a weird movie. It's again, he's very much the master of like not having a plot. It's just little stories kind of stitched together, and just you're just following people around Austin, Texas, on a, a given night in like the '90s, and it's awesome, and it's very dreamlike. Like he frames up the movie in the very first scene which in which it's literally him he's playing a character and he frames up his own movie really where he's just like you know all these he's talking about all these little realities and he's like how he goes to sleep and he has dreams and like some people say that that's just like a different reality and he's setting this all up and then you just kind of watch it you're like you're going through different realities like everybody's experience is their own little reality and you just get to watch it through the context of being in Austin, Texas on on just a regular day. And it's really interesting. So I love Slacker. It's a really fun movie. Especially if you especially if like you're really just into theme. Like if you're really just into little stories and theme like it's totally a precursor to what he would do later with the before trilogy and with Boyhood and sure. to a certain extent with Dazed and Confused. Um I really like movies that don't have a plot. Like yeah. they're not after anything like they're after something but it's like character driven like it's just like it's something about people want things because it's central to who they are yeah it's stumbled like the meaning is almost stumbled upon accidentally yeah and it's it's a lot of fun i link later has always been a guy that i really appreciate and really admire so having that and like all the supplemental materials um i believe the criterion edition also includes some of his earlier stuff um you know, some of his like short films, some of his Super 8, Super 16 short films. So very excited to dig into that. So uh, those are some recommendations. That's what we've been watching recently. Uh, definitely check them out, especially streaming stuff. Um, you know, if you can get it on Netflix. Also, go back and listen to our conversation with Jake S. Weissman about The Other Side of the Wind. Because I think that we felt that that was, a, you know, a recommendation that deserved its own conversation. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. So, uh, Connor, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Tom. I can't wait to uh, hang out with you let's, after this. Let's, let's unravel more film next week. Uh, this has been No Co Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we will see you all next time.